Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. When I think about all of the things that actually motivate people, racial justice is one of the strongest force multipliers we have in our society to move people to action. Facebook is the largest communications platform the world has ever seen. They're not going to put the dollars behind it because there's not the consequence for violating rules and regulations. There is no greater protagonist in the story of American democracy than black people. When black people win, we make society better for everyone. And the goal is to make our country and our society better for all of us. That's Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, a civil rights advocacy group and the largest online racial justice organization in the U.S., Rashad appeared on this show after George Floyd was murdered in 2020, pointing out the role that business could play in addressing racial injustice. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Rashad again because two years later, commitments from corporate America have often fallen short of expectations and promises. Color of Change grew from 2 million members to 7 million in a matter of weeks in 2020, and Rashad has marshaled that community to put pressure on CEOs and boards, particularly at tech companies and especially at Facebook. He successfully pressed for racial equity audits, too, via shareholder votes, from McDonald's to Apple. He's also expanded Color of Change's efforts to include women's rights and abortion access, and has worked directly with Barack Obama on addressing disinformation. Rashad says that size alone isn't what matters, that the scale of your power flows from the passion of your team and how disciplined you are in choosing your priorities. His lessons about what black people mean to and for America are compelling, as are his strategies for making positive change from Silicon Valley to Hollywood to Washington, D.C. A nonprofit shouldn't be expected to hold industry leaders and billionaires accountable, Rashad says, but if others aren't going to step up, then color of change will. He's committed to making the organization what he calls a force multiplier in societal efforts to build a better tomorrow. We'll start the show in a moment. Afterward, from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, 
as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian. I'm here with Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, a civil rights advocacy group and the largest online racial justice organization in the U.S. Rashad, thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, you were on this show two years ago when the pandemic was still very much in crisis mode, soon after George Floyd was murdered. And we talked a fair amount about the role that business could play in promoting equity. And since then, there's been a lot of discussion about increased commitments from business leaders, about their responsibility in shaping society and leadership. But there's controversy about talk versus action. And many businesses struggle with where they should land. You're on the front lines of this effort, striving to make change. How much has changed from two years ago? Have we really made progress? Like, what's your perspective about setting where we are right now? Well, I think it's a mixed bag. We absolutely have made progress. Did we meet the commitments and the broad statements that were made by CEOs and boards of directors? Absolutely not. But I never thought we would. A lot of reactions and hopes and dreams from companies that had a whole lot of work to do and probably didn't even understand the sort of level of work and structural change that was going to be needed in order for them to match the reality with their words. We launched something called Beyond the Statement. Beyond the Statement really focused on a set of demands that were connected to those statements about Black Lives Matter. Most recently, I presented in May at the McDonald's shareholders meeting. We won with 54 percent of the vote, uh, a racial equity audit. And now racial equity audits are an important step at transparency that sort of lay out where the company is at and then give us the ability on the outside to be able to hold the company to standards and next steps that are actually meaningful beyond words. Of course, we're seeing backslide to commitments. We're seeing companies try to wiggle out of things that they said and things that they committed to. But that's all part of any sort of work towards progress. The goals that were set out in some of those statements, it's just harder for organizations to reach them, so it's taking them longer? Or are they rethinking like, "Mm, I'm not sure that's really where I want to go? They've made these statements and they realize, oh, wow, we have to change a lot of things that we do in order to actually meet this new standard. Bob, a lot of people want to believe that racial inequity is unfortunate, almost like a car accident. It like just happens. So if we do a couple of things differently, that we can avoid the car accident. But racial injustice, racial inequality is not unfortunate like a car accident. 
It is manufactured. It is manufactured through a set of choices. When we're actually trying to deal with harm that exists in the world, we have to recognize that we're not looking for charitable solutions to problems that are structural. We're asking for structural change. If banks start off the conversation by saying, oh, wow, black people are less likely to get a loan from our bank rather than saying our bank is less likely to give loans to black people. Now, on one hand, they're like, oh, we should do some financial literacy programs that don't actually require the bank to change anything about their day-to-day actions, the ways in which they are assessing risks, evaluating communities. They're just saying, oh, we want to fix these people. We see that not just in banks, but we see that across the board, whether it's the bank, whether it's a social media company, whether it's any of these institutions that made these bold statements about changing and being committed to racial equity, if they ask themselves the question in the sort of active voice, now they have to force themselves to change their practices. Our work is to build a stronger, broader, multiracial coalition of people who actually will demand better from these companies and demand these companies actually meet the standards they've committed to. Because systemic change of the kind you're talking about is uncomfortable for these organizations, right? It's uncomfortable. It may be expensive. They don't really want to have to do it at a certain level, even if maybe intellectually they think they do. When it comes to the practicality, it gets too hard. They want the results at the end, but they don't want to have to change the practices to get there. This is human nature, right? This is how we operate. When you're dealing with something so entrenched in America's democracy, in America's economy, as racial inequity, of course, the shortcuts are going to be very much part of how people want to get from point A to point B without actually having to change anything along the way. So I want to ask you about Facebook, When we talked two years ago, you targeted Facebook getting advertisers to pull back in what you called Stop Hate for Profit. You recently came out with a new petition working with the Tech Transparency Project, again, targeting Facebook about hate-based organizations that are still getting support on the platform. Can you explain what's happening with Facebook? Maybe why you're focused on them or maybe that they're not responding to you in quite the way you might hope they would? Facebook is the largest communications platform the world has ever seen. It has nearly 3 billion users. That's more followers than Christianity. So we are focusing on Facebook because it's outsized role and impact in our lives. Nearly 70% of the messenger market between Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook is controlled by Meta. Self-regulated companies, which Facebook and the other tech companies are, are unregulated companies. They get to make their own rules and determine whether or not they meet those rules. And when we launched the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, it was because I had been in multiple meetings with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg where we had gotten commitments. We had walked out the door. We had talked to the press about the commitments. They had talked to the press about the commitments around dealing with various issues on the platforms. Then Donald Trump or someone else powerful would violate those rules and nothing would happen. And that is sort of a result of not really, in the end, having rules because these companies can do whatever they want. You go into the supermarket and your food is safe. That's not because the companies have on their own set these standards. 
Many of them fight these standards when new standards are introduced. The technology that can bring us into the future is dragging us into the past, violating civil rights law, creating all sorts of challenges. The great work of the Tech Transparency Project was, once again, things that Facebook said they had eliminated that you realize they hadn't eliminated. Looking up white nationalist organizations like the KKK and then getting served ads for black churches, that is a life and death. All sorts of groups and organizations that should no longer have access on Facebook based off of their own rules are still on the platform. They're not going to put the dollars behind it because there's not the consequence on the other end for violating rules and regulations. We have to hold Facebook accountable. We have to create a new sort of context for how these companies operate, whether it is breaking them up, whether it is new rules around how they get to operate in the public space in terms of the immunity they have over the content on their platforms, right? There's freedom of speech, but not freedom for amplification, not freedom for leveraging and moving content through ads. We can separate those things, still have platforms that sort of allow us to share information and have conversations, even if it's conversations you and I might not agree with, and at the same time, hold these platforms accountable for the harm they're doing out in the world. And when Facebook says, as they do, that they have more people working on topics like this internally than work for the FBI, like that it's not a question of their intent, just the challenge is so complicated. You don't buy that. They do not tell the truth time and time again. I have walked out of Facebook multiple times with one story only to hear a different story in the press. My job, I feel, over the last couple of years has been to hold the line between real solutions and fake solutions. Facebook wants us all to believe that the problems with information disorder are related to the practices of everyday people, not the algorithms. But when we get information from Facebook whistleblowers, we learn a couple of things. We learn how Facebook has changed its algorithm over the years. So you actually see less of your friends and family and more of the type of conversations that incite anger and passion and vitriol because they want to keep you on the platform longer. Now, that is a business choice. They have created, by design, information flows on their platform. If there was an actual accountability, if there was rules and fines at the scale that would be meaningful, I bet you Facebook would fix the problem because they would be incentivized to fix the problem. You've worked with a bunch of other big tech firms, challenged some. You had a foray with Apple earlier this year, advocating for third-party civil rights audit. How is Apple to work with compared to Facebook? All of these companies have been fighting audits. I would actually say Facebook went into the civil rights audit with way more willingness than Apple and Google and some of these other companies which have fought it. When I think about Apple and I think about all of these companies, it is, for me, a deep recognition of the place we're in because of the failure of our elected leaders. None of us should have to go to billionaires and beg for them to follow civil rights law, demanding that they are accountable to the harms that they create to communities. We have a failure in the sort of regulatory environment. So I would love to be in a place years from now where it's looking at how these companies actually meet the standards. 
my nonprofit, my relatively small nonprofit, is giving so much free advising, free advice, free counsel to these companies about how to fix problems, it should be insufficient for anyone who's listening right now to think that it's the nonprofit organizations that are working to hold these companies accountable and Mark Zuckerberg goes to Capitol Hill and nothing is done. Like, that is totally insufficient. All of us need to be demanding more from our elected officials. You had an outreach from Barack Obama about a year ago. Can you tell us that story? President Obama reached out to talk a little bit about misinformation and disinformation. All of the stories and lies that have been told about him and his heritage and his family and his policies and his intent. And he asked, would I be interested in helping to share my thoughts, advise as he's was thinking about wrestling with these issues and where he could make impact. It led to the speech he gave at Stanford, which I was able to help some with, as well as sort of ongoing engagement with him and his team at the Obama Foundation. We feel like David in the David and Goliath struggle against these companies. But the former most powerful person in the world, probably the most famous black person in the world next to Beyonce, come out and really talk about these issues helps people understand the harm that is being caused. There's simply no way that a multiracial democracy of people who don't have ancestral connections can live and thrive and work together if we can't have an environment where fact and truth has a chance at being heard. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was, like, sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the <laughs> newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard Rashad Robinson, the president of Color of Change, talk about his efforts to push back on companies from McDonald's to Facebook on issues of racial equity and disinformation. Now, he talks about how Color of Change is pushing the entertainment industry and how the way power works in Hollywood, as he puts it, creates resistance. He also shares lessons about being practical with your priorities, but always in service of a clear North Star. Business has to use the same kind of innovation it applies to money-making efforts to addressing cultural issues, he argues. And in the process, those initiatives will become a strategic motivator for all kinds of progress. 
Building a movement like you're trying to do is hard. Keeping people's attention over time when there are so many changes going on in the world. You mentioned last time that Color of Change's membership was at around 2 million and then jumped to 7 million in a matter of weeks after George Floyd. Has that number kept growing? Like, And how do you operate differently at this new level of scale? Are you looking to get to the next level of scale? I wouldn't say that we've grown much more since then. What we've worked is to go deeper with people. And so growing the ways in which people engage, not just single actions, but in our offline work now that we're sort of back in person places, I think that there is size and there's power. But as someone who's 5'3", I like to believe that you can be very powerful and you don't always have to be big. Sustaining energy is hard. And there's going to be constant ebbs and flows to what people are able to do in the life cycle of both people's commitments and campaigns. One of the kind of secret sauces and not so secret sauces at Color of Change is that we work to win. We can win real change, win things that are meaningful, win campaigns that move us forward. We talked a little bit last time about how you're consistently like modulating where color of change goes and the issues that it works around based on what your community is going to respond to and where you can get action. I mean, there's a lot more that you guys are doing now around women's rights and abortion access than you were doing two years ago. And now I guess maybe policing is a little less of a hot issue. Like, is that sort of the ways you think about the strategy of it? We are trying to be valuable to our members, right, to the issues that are impacting them and are front and center. And so, you know, we absolutely will be in district attorney races through our political action committee this election cycle. We absolutely have been on Capitol Hill fighting this legislation that's going to give more money to police without any accountability federally and been focused on working very closely with members of the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Progressive Caucus on strategies to be able to fight back on legislation when they were trying to combine the gun legislation with the policing legislation and try to move it together. And we pushed and got it separated. When the Dobbs decision came down around abortion access, we had already been doing work with what was happening on platforms around vigilantes using the platforms to target women who had made reproductive choices, whether it was Reddit, Facebook, getting things pulled down, forcing the companies to update their terms of services. We work to hold Facebook accountable when they share the DMs of a 17-year-old that then leads to prosecution of her and her mother. We are trying to shape an environment and take on campaigns and try to be as strategic as possible about where we have power and where we don't have power. You're not going to see a campaign from Color of Change that says, tell Mitch McConnell to stand up for affirmative action. Now, I would love it if Mitch McConnell would stand up for affirmative action, but that's fantasy, and I try to live in reality. We have to sort of constantly think about what does it mean to not just have presence, which is visibility and awareness, retweets, shout-outs from the stage, emails that people click and sign and share because they're outraged. People take action with us. And we're asking people to take the types of strategic action where their participation will potentially add up to something real. There's a practicality, a discipline and a practicality to the way you're doing this that like, 
things that are working, you do more of. Like you use the resources, the assets that you have to get more out of what's working and maybe try not to get distracted by the hopes or the pie in the sky things that maybe aren't close enough at hand for you to be able to deliver on. It's important that you, you're helping people see a North Star, a world that we hope to live in, a more human, less hostile world. There is no greater protagonist in the story of American democracy than Black people. And the wins along the way for American democracy that Black people have led and that Black people have fought for in multiracial coalitions, asking people of all races to be their better selves along the way for those fights, that has made this country better. What is the story of education if it's not a story of people who would have been killed for learning how to read but fought and despite all of that, fought to be educated. When they were excluded, built their own education institutions. Those are the stories that I want to tell because when we tell stories that center the community as the protagonist, what we can believe is possible can be much bigger, much grander, much better. We fundamentally believe that when Black people win, we make society better for everyone. And the goal is to make our country and our society better for all of us. In the realm of storytelling, you've done a lot of work on and with the entertainment industry. We talked last time about the normalizing injustice study that Color of Change did pressing Hollywood in 2020. A new study is expected soon? Yeah, in October. Any top-line previews you can give us? We are going to point to progress on a number of shows. I still think that we have to change the floor and push up the ceiling. I think about gay and lesbians on TV in 2006 and 2007 and what would be dead on arrival today. A show like Glee came on and you saw the attacks. Now you couldn't have a show about a high school and not have kids who were gay or trans or questioning or sort of all of the above. That change of what the floor looks like constantly pushes up the ceiling. What we're seeing in crime procedural shows, I think, is a number of shows that are getting it much better. We've been in the writer's room for, you know, over 20 shows during the 2021, early 2022, helping to sort of engage these shows around storylines, around police unions, around internal investigations, around the incentive structures behind policing. But I consistently hear these stories that never end up on these shows because of the way that power works. We still are in an environment where many of these shows are serving as PR arms for law enforcement. Many of these shows are putting out missing disinformation. If we had missing disinformation about diabetes or cancer on a hospital show, I think people would think that that was a problem. And we have to hold Hollywood accountable for the relationships it has created with law enforcement, where many of these shows are afraid to show law enforcement in negative lights because they're afraid that they won't be able to film in the cities or they won't have access to uniforms or they won't have access to this in order to film. You know, as you're talking about all of this, all the different areas that you work in, like there's a lot of conflict. You're managing conflict and in conflict with lots of organizations all the time. Yeah. Are you stressed by that? Like, do you get exhausted by it? 
yes, I do get stressed by it and I do get exhausted by it. And I used to say no. Only in the last eight months have I really come to terms with, I think, the toll that it takes. The toll that it takes when you deplatform white nationalists and then you become targeted by white nationalists. So, yes, it does stress me out. I also want to be clear that for me, in my entire life, I can think about the protests I've led in high school, the public access show I had on teen issues in high school. Like, activism has always, for me, been an outlet to help me make sense of injustices. And so it would not be true to say it doesn't stress me out. But at the same time, I think I'm a fighter and I feel grateful that I get to wake up every day and fight for things I believe in and fight alongside people that I believe in. You acknowledge that like the last few months you sort of are feeling or, or seeing that stress in a different way. Are, are you managing that stress in a different way? Yeah. I love to cook, and so I cook a lot. I try to find time with family and friends where color of change doesn't come up. When I go a lot of places, people want to get my perspective on the news story. They've been waiting to talk to me about the thing that I show up and don't want to talk about. There was an exhaustion to the pandemic. Then it becomes a different exhaustion of having to rebuild a muscle to go out into the public and to have to constantly confront this reality that we're inside of. The listeners on the show are business people, entrepreneurs. Do you have advice for them about how to think about their approach to responsibility, to the role that their organizations can play in building the kind of society that you dream about? What is the go-to-market of what they are currently doing? And start there. Because whatever sort of thing that they're impacting in the world through the business that they're creating or building or sustaining, that is the perfect place to sort of have the impact. The next thing is to sort of bring the same type of innovation that you would bring to solving any other problems in your business. I've seen CEOs really work to try to not start off the conversation where we just can't find black people to like work in our company, start from a different place, you just see better results. And then the final thing that I would say is to find partners, to find organizations locally or nationally, people who excel at this, people who are focused on equity. All of that, I think, has to be part of the advice. I think another thing that's incredibly important for business leaders is that racial justice is not just an outcome. Racial justice isn't just charity. Racial justice is strategy. It is a strategic motivator to action. When I think about sort of all of the things that actually motivate people, make people stand up, racial justice is one of the strongest force multipliers we have in our society to move people to action, to get your employees, to get your customers to stand up and stand with you. And if folks of all races would lean into racial justice more, it could be both sort of the framework that gets more of us to act in ways that are truly making change and a clear way for us to evaluate whether or not that change is actually at the scale that we all deserve. Well, Rashad, I want to thank you for helping us understand and stay focused in things in the right areas. And thanks for taking the time to be with us. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. 
And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Masters of Scale host is Reid Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our head of content and production is Lori Hoffman. Our producer is Marie McCoy-Thompson. Scripts by Alex Morris and Tucker Ligurski. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Emily McManus, Adam Heiner, Colin Howarth, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Aputa, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tartar, Leah Saramedis, Charlie Manessis, Chinemia Zaquena, Aria Finger, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode. And please subscribe to our email newsletter. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.